Thank you for the invitation, Evelyn and Stephanie. Um, my name is Michael Flynn. I'm the lead researcher of the Global Detention Project, which uh, is a project on immigration detention based at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, I'm not, my presentation today isn't, um, isn't altogether uh, uh, an exact fit for this panel because it's not going to deal with law per se, but in some respects it's not an exact fit for the conference either. It's, um, as, you'll, as you'll see, what we do at the detention project is, is mostly um, empirical in nature, investigative. Um, but nonetheless, um, I'm here and I'm very happy to be here, so thank you. <laughs> Um, a little bit about the Global Detention Project. Um, um, it is a research project on the role detention plays in states' responses to global migration with a focus on the policies and physical infrastructures of detention. The goals include developing a measurable and regularly updatable baseline for analyzing the growth and evolution of detention practices around the world to encourage scholarship in this phenomena and to facilitate accountability and transparency in the treatment of detainees. Um, just to give you a little bit of sense of what we do, um, one of the key activities of the detention project is to systematically construct data on individual detention sites across the globe. Um, and this slide gives you a sense of the dimensions both of what we've done so far and uh, globally of this particular phenomenon. A couple caveats before I discuss these, 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 these points. Um, these numbers at best should be considered preliminary approximations. Um, most of the information we get is based on outdated or incomplete sources. Um, judgments about facilities are made without visiting them. Um, we have two or three researchers sitting in desks talking to people on the phone, doing exhaustive research of, uh, of literature, available literature. And uh, quite frequently, there are simply no resources for many countries with respect to their detention centers. So we construct, base, we construct data on the basis of conversations with people, many of whom have political agendas. So it can be very difficult to understand exactly what it is you're talking about from one country to the next. Um, so to date, we have investigated 80 countries, identified roughly 1,200 sites of detention, um, which can be broken down into uh, about 80% of these are basically half of the 80% are prisons and half of them are dedicated immigration detention facilities. The, the other 20% make up a large, um, there's a number of categories of facilities that are used as well, which I'll, get to, I'll come back to later. Uh, by far the country with the largest detention infrastructure in the world is the United States. Um, as of two, uh, by 2007, the United States government had contracts with over 900 individual detention facilities around the country, including local prisons, federal penitentiaries, privately run prisons, shelters, juvenile detention facilities, among other facilities, to hold non-citizens in custody, various forms of custody. Um, there's an effort to cut back on the number of prisons in use in the United States currently, um, but nonetheless, this remains a very massive detention infrastructure. On any given day, there are about 350 detention sites in use, as you can tell from this figure here, only 27 of these are dedicated immigration detention facilities, meaning the vast majority are prisons. Um, in terms of the, the scope of this, looking at the number of detention sites doesn't necessarily tell us how many people are detained. The United States budgets to hold, at any given moment, 33,000 people. Um, the European Union, the, the EU 27, um, 
This is a difficult figure to come up with um, because it depends on what you define as a detention center. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. But the figures run anywhere from 250 to 350 detention sites. The Jesuit Refugee Services in a few weeks has published a report on the EU27. They may have some very good statistics. I would, I would refer you to that study when that's released. We have identified approximately 170 dedicated facilities in the EU27. Dedicated facilities meaning facilities used exclusively to hold immigration detainees. The physical capacity of these, 120, of these 170 facilities is anywhere between 150 on average, between 150 and 200, which gives you a total physical capacity of roughly 30,000. Again, this is, I don't know. I don't know if this is accurate or not. Getting actual capacity figures is not something easy um, to find, especially in 27 different countries, many of which don't publicize their data. Um, the last figure here, 100,000, this is simply to be a little bit provocative. I really don't know if this is true at all. Um, <laughs> we get phone calls all the time from people who want to know this figure. How many people are detained on any given day around the world on immigration-related charges? And we don't know. But based, uh, based on, on looking at the, the statistics of the United States and the EU, which, from everything we can tell, detain more people than any other region of the world. And looking at other, and, and, and based on the other statistics we have in other countries, we can estimate that more or less there probably are about 100,000 people on any given day in immigration detention around the globe. But again, there's a lot of caveats here. I really don't know. But um, it's something to chew on. Um, so, um, so my paper, which I haven't written, um, but the presentation, um, the, the, the argument here, um, the paper which is entitled Immigration Detention and the Aesthetics of Incarceration. The argument here is that immigration detention is closely related to criminal incarceration in a number of ways. First of all, it's the basic nature of immigration detention, deprivation of liberty. On the very first level, this is very similar to incarceration. Again, the types of facilities, like in the United States, but also in Europe and elsewhere in the world, the types of facilities used are jails, former jails. Um, they include armed guards, bars, barbed wire. Not all facilities, but many. So there's this very strong relationship to incarceration. Um, but very importantly as well, the relationship to incarceration is one of perception. Detainees see themselves in prison. They don't see themselves in some administrative thing. This is prison for them. Um, likewise, many of the international organizations and rights observers, like the, um, the European Commission for the Prevention of Torture, the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, frequently criticize countries for having prison-like detention facilities for immigrants, and they find this to be a, a violation of some core internationally recognized norms with respect to the treatment of people. Um, so states have responded to this association um, in, in, in a couple of ways. In the, first, in, in the first place, they like to broadcast the fact that they detain people because it's a way of deterring immigrants. Um, they generally don't say this out loud, but some countries do. The United States, for instance, a number of officials like to broadcast this and say, well, we will detain you if you come. But a very cursory look at statistics shows you that, this, that, that it's really a symbolic issue. If, if you have, for instance, in Italy, 300,000 undocumented immigrants, but you detain, say, 500, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're actually trying to detain all these people? Because if you really were going to do this, your, your infrastructure would be tremendously huge. You can detain a few and you send a message. Um, you send a message both to immigrants and you send a message to your constituents that we're doing something about this. But really, it's not 
it's, it, 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 I don't think it's actually, I think it's really about deterrence. Um, but at the same time, they're very sensitive to the fact that this is a prison-like situation. And in certain settings, policy settings and certain documents, they, they disguise both of the names that they use and the laws that they use and the way they describe what they're doing to certain audiences. They like to describe this as something else. They don't want, they don't want to highlight the fact that they hold people without charging them with crimes behind bars. Um, so the result is that when you look at this phenomenon globally, it's extraordinarily difficult to characterize from one country to the next. Um, and the detention project, the Global Detention Project, has as one of its goals trying to come up with a methodology for doing just this, for trying to look at all the countries around the world and figure out a methodology in 10 minutes. Um, I don't really have enough time for this, but um, I'll, I'll move forward. So um, that's the argument. We can argue about it later. Um, so just a couple definitions. Um, in most of the world, you don't really have very clear laws with respect to who's detained on what purposes. In the Europe, you have lots of different forms of detention for different reasons, pre-deportation, etc. In most countries, you don't. We've tried to come up with a definition that seems to fit this, the overall phenomena, the deprivation of liberty of non-citizens because of their status, their status as non-citizens. Um, it's a sort of simple definition, probably too simple, but when you look at it, when you look at it, um, it's, it can be quite complicated. On the first level, what is deprivation of liberty? Um, a lot of agencies have, have weighed in on this, especially with respect to the deprivation of liberty in, in, with respect to administrative detention. Um, UNHCR, the European Committee for the Prevention of Torture, the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention have all come up with their formulations of what this means. I'm going to sort of avoid that argument right now and just for the moment refer to this as locking people up against their will. Um, so who is a non-citizen? Uh, the detention project includes in this a, cohort, a fairly clear cohort of people, <laughs> migrants, both regular and irregular, asylum seekers, refugees, victims of trafficking, stateless persons, and people stripped of their citizenship. Um, this seems pretty straightforward, but in many countries it's actually not that clear. Um, in some places like Hong Kong, for instance, there is no citizenship. There's just a permanent residency or a right of abode. There's also a complication with EU citizens. Um, people who are citizens of the EU should not be under European, under, under, EC, under EC law detained necessarily in other member states. Um, and then there's this odd category of people stripped of their citizenship. Um, and you find in an increasing number of states that this is a very real issue. Romania, for example, has a statute on undesirable citizens who are allowed to be taken into public custody or administrative detention alongside other immigrant detainees. And in the United States recently, some of you may have noticed the, uh, the neoconservative independent Democrat from Connecticut, Joseph Lieberman, the senator, has proposed stripping terrorism suspects of their citizenship, and these people would be subject to forms of detention as well. Um, so, what are, site, what are sites of deprivation of liberty? That's basically the heart of the paper, which I probably have two minutes to talk about. Um, the standard characterization of, of this phenomenon, um, we find highly problematic, um, both because there's this binary, open, closed um, vocabulary that's used, and the, the word camp often crops up in policy conversations in this respect. An EU Parliament Commission study in 2006 characterized detention sites in the following manner. Places of detention are considered open when the individuals who are required to reside there are able to leave at will. Closed detention is where the individual is not permitted to leave the confines of the camp at will. 
So what are the problems here? First of all, camp. What is a camp? I, I find the word to be very politically loaded, first of all. Um, most of the centers that we talk about have no, have, uh, don't have any, uh, they, they can't be called, they're not like refugee camps that you'd find in the developing world. They're certainly not like concentration camps, and I think some groups like to have the echo of the concentration camp back there, but there's really no similarity to this whatsoever, so I think that's an appropriate association, whether, um, and, and obviously summer camp, it's not summer camp. Um, <laughs> the, the, also, the very important element here is that if you use the term camp too broadly, you sort of lose the sense of what it actually means. And there are, in fact, some places around the world which you could call camps. They're open-air facilities, where people are locked in the gate, and there's an armed guard. Um, and so, to call all these facilities camps, you sort of lose it the sense that there is a discrete type of facility that is a camp. So, we find that a problem. Um, and then the binary distinction. Uh, there's an obvious contradiction with the concept of detention when you call it open. It's not detention, right? I mean, there's no point in calling it open. So, so I think you just get rid of that word. Um, it also fails, and, and the centers that are usually called open are reception centers in the European Union. And these open centers often aren't so open either. So um, there's a problem with the use of that word. In addition, there's a problem with the word closed. Um, because closed doesn't tell us exactly, it doesn't tell us very much either. It doesn't tell us if it's a jail, it doesn't tell us if it's an immigration detention facility, it doesn't tell us if it's a facility in an airport or a or a shelter, or, or whatever it may be, so many different kinds, it doesn't tell us much about that. And likewise, it doesn't give us an idea of the sort of complex nature of custody in these detention centers. Um, so that's, that's the sort of straw man argument, I'm going to set up it's not used by everybody, but I'm going to use it here and then knock it down. Um, um, what we would like to do at the detention center is to come up with a categorization scheme that sort of captures some of the nuances of detention and also sort of shows the relationship, can begin to allow us to begin to measure the relationship between immigration detention and incarceration. Um, and so I propose four, four categories of information. Facility type, security level, management, and custodial authority. Um, facility typology. We have found, looking around the world, that you have six main types of facilities in use to hold immigration detainees in custody various levels of custody. Um, these include dedicated immigration detention centers, which are designed typically for longer-term administrative detention of non-citizens. And then you have prisons, um, which include an assortment of different types of facilities, from penitentiaries to borstal institutions. You have immigration offices, which are commonly used in the United States, Mexico, many parts of the world. They're offices that have a holding cell that's not meant to hold people for very long, but people end up being there for a very long period of time. So it's important for us to know this information because just calling it a closed detention center doesn't tell us that it's a center that's not actually properly constructed or set up to hold people for more than a few days. Um, reception centers for asylum seekers. Most of these are open facilities and they would not make it into the data of the, graduate, of the, of the Global Detention Project. But there are some that have different levels of custody that would be considered a form of detention. And if I have a moment, I'll get to that or we can talk about it afterwards. Um, the ad hoc. Now, most of the developing world have ad hoc centers, and it's very hard to keep track of these. They change, they open, they close, the laws with respect to them change quite frequently as well. Um, and there can be all kinds of ad hoc centers, but the main idea about the ad hoc center is that they are an improvised facility. They're improvised in law, they're improvised in their operations, they're not meant to be detention centers. Um, and again, there's examples of this, I don't have time for it, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a bit later in a personal conversation or any questions. And then there's this final kind of detention, which is transit center, which is 
external detention. It's the sort of legal fiction that you cross the border, but you haven't really crossed the border. Most of these transit centers don't make it into our data because if it's just for a day or two, it's not, it's considered, if we were, if we were to map out all the transit centers around the world, we'd have a holding facility known as any border across around the world. We'd be overwhelmed in useless data. To the extent that transit centers are used by some countries, specific centers for longer term detentions, we will include that in our data. But again, it requires getting some very clear sense of how these centers are used, which specific airports, etc. How am I doing? Three minutes. Three minutes. <laughs> um, security level. Um, instead of open and closed, we, we propose something a little more nuanced. Secure, semi-secure, non-secure, mixed regime. Um, secure is a pretty clear concept. It's deprivation of liberty. And um, you can't come or go. It's pretty clear. Semi-secure, as, as I write here, it has some caveats. And I'll give you a couple examples if I have a moment. Non-secure, if there's a facility that you would categorize as non-secure, it would not make it into the detention project data at all. Um, open centers are not detention centers, if they really are open. We prefer the term non-secure. But it's an important concept to include in our data because some facilities have mixed regimes, many in fact, where they have sections of the facilities that are open, people can come and go freely, um, and others that are either semi-secure or secure. So it's an important, so we, we so these are four security levels, which we think are very important for trying to, to get a better sense of what's going on in each of these facilities. Um, management, public-private, public-private partnership, partnerships, international organizations. This is a very important category of information because it really tells us the status of people, how they're being treated, who's treating them in a particular country. It gives us a sense of the aesthetics of their situation. Who is, what is the agency that's actually handling them um, in the specific facility itself? Um, public, public management can include a number of different kinds of management that we found, police, military, prison services, immigration agencies. Private, uh, this is a very important category and an increasingly important one. Um, the United States, the UK, Australia, and many other countries around the world use private security contractors in their facilities. Um, this is important because it also tells us that, I mean, the more that you include private, the, the thesis being that the more you include private industry in this, the more pressures there will be eventually on states to detain more people so that these private corporations can make larger profits and grow, which is the nature of private industry. Um, there's also an increasing use of nonprofit agencies. Italy, you may know, uses the Red Cross to manage its detention facilities, many of them. Um, there's joint for-profit, not-for-profit contracts, and this is something that we haven't seen necessarily with immigration detention, but in the UK, this is a big thing with respect to prisons. There are joint bids between companies like Serco and NGOs to run prisons. The thinking being, I think, behind this for the private corporations is that if you include a not-for-profit NGO humanitarian organization in the management of the facility, you'll probably get the contract. It looks good. Um, I think that we may see this going on with the immigration detention centers at one point, at some point down the line. Um, Public-private partnerships. These are partially managed by state, by private entities. There's lots of those. And international organizations. Um, generally speaking, we don't see international organizations operating in these detention facilities, but um, you do to some extent. They certainly are involved in places like Lampedusa and providing services, managing certain aspects of these. Um, there are, have been facilities that we've identified in Somalia, for instance, uh, where UNHCR, IOM are very, very much involved in helping organize the interior of camps for various reasons while the armed guards come from the state. Um, so there's a level of management that international organizations are involved in. 
wrap up. So wrap up, just the last one, there's, there's other things here, why is this important, but... Uh, <laughs> custodial authority, and this is the last one, because who has custody of these people in the end, at the end of the day? Um, and this sort of speaks for itself, but it also tells us a little bit about the aesthetics of the situation here. Are they being considered a part of the national security infrastructure? Is, national security, is it seen as necessary for national security? bureaucracy to handle these people? Is it a prison system? Some countries use the prison system. Again, that tells us something very clear about how they're treated and their situation. Is it a home affairs or interior uh, department? Is it justice, immigration, international organizations? Um, again, there's something interesting about international organizations. I don't really have time for it, but there's, there are these entities um, that have been used in some countries called that UNHCR has been established called emergency transit centers. Romania, Slovakia, the Philippines have these facilities. Maybe some of you know what they are. They are situations where these, the IOM, the UNHCR, has tripartite, tripartite agreements with the, the state involved to temporarily evacuate people in need of emergency international protection because no country wants them. So they need to get out. So they set up these transit centers in certain states where the custody is shared between the international organization and the state involved. Um, I think that to some degree this might be the future. As countries shut down asylum, maybe we'll see more and more of these kinds of emergency transit centers popping up in some states as a sort of, as a sort of uh, third way, I suppose, uh, to, to help people in situations, in bad situations, get out. Again, we don't know if these emergency transit centers are detention centers or not. It's an open question. UNHCR and questions that we posed to them said they're not because the people in these centers, even though they're not allowed to leave, they can only leave if somebody from the center walks with them wherever they're going to go. UNHCR says that it's not against their will. They're there because they signed an agreement in the country that they're at. Although the question of will is an interesting one here because they had to get the hell out of the country they were at. Um, they would probably sign any agreement to do it. But nonetheless, it's a bit of a question whether or not we should consider this a detention center. I'll wrap it up. Thank you for listening. <laughs>